We are very happy to have with us Rachel Harris, who graduated from Barnard in 2003. Um, and she is the US Climate Change Campaign Coordinator at the Women's Environment and Development Organization, We Do. And I'm so envious of everybody who works on the environment, because you have that vowel right there to make all the We Do names. We Do, We Act, We Co. Um, so she works at Women's Env Environment and Development Organization. Um, and she also holds a master's degree from that school across the street known as Columbia <laughs> University um, in climate and society. Um, in graduate school, she primarily focused on climate change and climate variability and the way it impacts healthy local um, and its impact on health locally, domestically, and internationally. And it's one of the things that's really interesting about the work that we do does is that they connect work that happens right here in New York City, for example, to a global policy picture. Prior to coming to WeDo, she worked with environmental organizations, including the World Resources Institute, the International Research Institute for Climate and Society, and the Environmental Law Institute. She was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and in fact made it back to New York from New Orleans just this morning, and she's lived in New York City for about eight years. So please welcome Rachel Harris. Good afternoon. Um, so I just wanted to give more of a general overview of uh, the global policy work that we do at WeDo and why we're focusing on climate change, particularly bringing a gender perspective. Um, so in many places around the world, women are disproportionately responsible for household activities because women are often in charge of collecting resources such as water, fuel, food, and medicinal products for the home. They have an acute knowledge of where these resources are the weather conditions favorable for these resources and the care needed to maintain biodiversity. It is therefore no wonder that women's empowerment and gender equality has for years been considered a prerequisite to sustainable development. One of the major places where women had a great influence on being an integral part of sustainable development treaties was at the World Earth Summit. In 1992, over 100 heads of state met in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil for the first Earth Summit to address the problems of environmental protection and socioeconomic development. The leaders there signed three conventions, which included the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Convention to Combat Desertification, and the Convention on Climate Change. At this summit, the Women's Caucus had a great influence on the language included in an um, action called Agenda 21. This was an action plan created by United Nations bodies and non-governmental organizations and moving forward with sustainable development globally. Agenda 21 in particular has a chapter on women recognizing that women have a vi vital role in environmental management and development. Hence, women's full participation is essential to achieve sustainable development. However, only two out of the three conventions that came out of the Earth Summit specifically reference women and gender equality, and those are the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Convention to Combat Desertification. The only convention from that summit that does not address gender equality or women's empower empowerment, and in fact, the only major global agreement that does not have a gender component is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. This convention doesn't even address really any social justice components. Similarly, the Kyoto Protocol, the first binding international agreement on climate change, also does not address these issues. 
However, it is climate change that exacerbates existing inequalities amongst women and men and ultimately reduces uh, the ability to cope with environmental changes. Climate change has been said to set back the progress of the Millennium Development Goals by 20 years, which within which within those goals, sustainable development and gender equality are cross-cutting issues. The Kyoto Protocol expires in 2012, and though some progress was made at the recent climate change negotiations in Copenhagen, Denmark, on developing a new binding global climate change agreement, we are continuing and have to continue this year and maybe in years to follow to work to ensure that a new global climate change agreement is gender responsive and prioritizes vulnerable communities. Um, and I'll go a little bit into how uh, we do has been working with various women's organizations around the world to try to respond. Then um, at a global climate change conference, uh, we decided to launch an initiative called the Global Gender and Climate Change Alliance. Um, and basically this is an alliance of about it has grown to about 38 uh, organizations, uh, non-governmental and UN organizations, really uh, focusing at uh, trying to develop a new global treaty that is responsive to gender issues. So uh, last year, all these organizations came together and we advocated at several of the uh, international conferences that were negotiating a new agreement um, that was supposedly supposed to come out in Copenhagen, but that didn't happen. Um, however, we, we worked with several countries to advocate for gender responsive uh, climate change agreement. And while we didn't achieve an actual global binding agreement in response to uh, this new deadline of the Kyoto Protocol expiring, we did make some significant achievements for women. Um, we went from zero to about over 40 uh, references in the global negotiating text to gender equality, women's empowerment, um, and several key points of the text. And we're hoping to continue that type of work this year. And this was the work of hundreds of women from around the world coming together to really push their governments to say that women need to be prioritized, gender equality needs to be prioritized in this agreement. So this is something that we really hope to continue this year and um, I, I can talk more about that in, later. Our next speaker is Susan Shaw. She's the founder and director of Marine Environmental Research Institute. Um, and she herself is a marine toxicologist, explorer, and author who has spent two decades documenting the effects of hundreds of man-made chemicals in marine mammals along the North American Pacific and Atlantic coasts. So she's been described as a modern-day Rachel Carson and has a passion for understanding sea mammal wildlife sentinels and how their proximity to people has put them in peril. She's been named Gulf of Maine Visionary, and Susan is widely recognized for creating an extensive body of data that places the Northwest Atlantic marine ecosystem in a global perspective. In 2007, the Maine legislature honored her for her pioneering work addressing the problem of ocean pollution and its impact on marine life and on human beings. She is credited as the first scientist to discover the brominated flame retardant chemicals used in consumer products are bioaccumulating in marine mammals and commercially important marine fishes in the Northwest Atlantic ecosystem, a finding with implications for human health that has influenced legislation in the U.S. and internationally. She holds an MFA in film, no less, um, and a doctorate in public health, environmental health sciences from Columbia University, Susan Shaw.
I was a filmmaker with a master's degree from the school over there. Uh, and I was a documentary filmmaker. And then I went back to school, got a doctorate at the school up there, or wherever, <laughs> from here up. Okay, way up there, uh, Columbia. Um, and I was in the School of Public Health, and it was the summer of 1988, and 20,000 harbor seals died en masse in Europe from pollution-related causes. And I was in toxicology, and this interested me tremendously. And I saw this as uh, something I wanted to work on, so I've been doing this ever since. I've been at it for about 20 years, trying to understand these animals that are at the top of the marine food chain and are extremely chemically stressed, so they're living at the edge of their physiological tolerance range. And um, then, in t uh, but I wanted to say, uh, this is so nice being here. I, it was since I became a scientist, I am used to looking out at a sea of male faces. Not that I don't like them, but, uh, uh, and enjoy. Uh, and also, I'm, I'm used to having scientists give uh, four days of talks, thousands of data points, many, many studies, documenting, reporting on the horrendous and increasing contamination of the world we live in, and simply reporting the data, writing the papers, and going on to the next study. So that, that's the world that I am operating in. But I, what I've been finding uh, since about 2007 is that scientists are starting to get into the act and into the business of taking care of the world. In 2007, I made a discovery that Janet referred to. Um, I found that flame retardants were building up in animals along the coastline of the Northwest Atlantic. I reported this data, and at that time, the Maine legislature was taking up a bill to ban flame retardants, the toxic, neurotoxic compound DECA, from um, children's toys, baby products, and foam furniture. And I was asked to advise the legislature on that decision. We wound up, uh, they did ban the compound, and um, I've been getting deeper and deeper ever since. <laughs> So I, now I'm working with a small group of people, scientists, who are uh, actually caring about what's happening, challenging the companies and the governments that are allowing this to happen, and helping to change policy worldwide. So I'm working now uh, with a group in uh, South China on people that are working, women and children working in EY sites and are highly exposed. And I want to talk today about how climate change is making all this worse. And I'm going to get my PowerPoint going here. And also show you some of the actual data. Okay. So the problem is that most chemicals are not effectively reg regulated in our country. Uh, Tosca is a completely broken policy uh, from 1976. We have 80,000 chemicals in uh, commerce that we're being exposed to. Most of them have no health data, no safety data. We actually don't even know what some of them are because of trade secrets. And we're lacking bio biomonitoring data. Therefore, 
the EPA can't regulate these compounds. Um, so uh, it boils down to we've been we bought into as a society living better with chemistry, and I think you all know that you may have heard that. But the chemicals we're really worried about now are chemicals we're currently using in all kinds of household and uh, consumer products. And I'm going to talk about two. The brominated flame retardants, or BFRs particularly, the PBDEs, um, and the perfluorinated chemicals that are surfactants. So uh, this is just to show you how uh, these chemicals are in everything that we use. The chairs you're sitting on, the foam in the, in the cushions, clothing, textiles, mattresses, upholstery, TVs, computers, plastics, electronics, insulations for homes, and these um, are endocrine disruptors and their thyroid toxins and developmental neurotoxins, meaning that they, um, they affect the developing brain. The perfluorinated chemicals are similar because they're uh, in our everyday lives. They are surfactants. They keep oil and water from reaching each other in fast food wrappings. They're in uh, 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 stain-resistant fabric, nonstick pans, and et cetera, firefighting foams. They're getting into our drinking water, and these chemicals are also carcinogens. What's happening here is we have this massive indoor exposure because what happens with the foam furniture and other, your computer, is these compounds come out of the products and get into dust. This is toxic dust that we all breathe and ingest in our daily life. So we have 80% exposure that way, also uh, exposed through diet. But over time, this, these compounds are bleeding from indoor environments out into the outdoor environments, and climate change is amplifying this migration. This is just a schematic of how you chemicals are primarily reservoired in the home, and they're going out through the surface waters. They're going from landfills, wastewater treatment plants, to e-waste recycling. Uh, facilities and getting into the atmosphere and the ocean. And I, I work, as you know, on, the o on ocean pollution. Um, I got curious, so I had my blood tested and found, just like everybody here today, if you had your blood tested, that we're carrying like tons of chemicals. I found about 113 in my blood, including the PBDEs, the flame retardants, and the PFCs, perfluorinated chemicals. Um, Americans, because we are, have so aggressively embraced the use of chemicals in our lives, we have so aggressively flame-retarded everything in our world, and we could afford to do it, um, we have much higher levels of these compounds in our bodies than they have in Europeans or Asians. Like, there's 10 to 40 times higher uh, in Americans. And this was kind of shocking to me. I happened to be on the high end of this equation. My blood had uh, about 50 times higher levels than people in Europe. So I wasn't really particularly happy to find this out. But at any rate, I'm only one of, of the many. And we have done a big study now to show that these compounds are increasing in North Americans. And this is the. The levels in uh, human blood are going up over 30 years exponentially with a doubling time of every two to five years, also going up in many, many species of wildlife. Um, if you look at people in a home, infants have four to six times higher levels than their parents. 
because they're on the ground and they're picking up the dust from ingestion and inhalation. So babies are born pre-polluted from, from their exposure in the womb. They also get a big, huge dose of pollutants from mother's milk and then picking up a lot from this home exposure. So today's children have higher rates of conditions linked to exposure in animals, including ADHD, autism, cancers, diabetes, and obesity. Recent studies are showing many, many uh, human diseases connected with um, these compounds, the brominate flame retardants. And I'm not going to go through all of them naturally, but one I want to call out uh, attention to, recent study by um, Julie Herbstman. That's, uh, she's at the Columbia uh, Children's Environmental Center in the um, uptown. So that showing that there are IQ deficits in children that are exposed to these compounds. Then another study is showing, a uh, recent study showing that um, there's gender and race factors involved in exposure. And the reason for this is that um, people in low-income households have older furniture and pr baby products with foam exposed. Parents may be uh, working in more uh, toxic occupations. And when you're fat, you uh, dilute these chemicals in your body. When you're thin, you concentrate them. So uh, in older girls who have put on more weight, uh, the chemicals are lower levels. And then just I want to tell, talk a little bit about these high-risk populations in the developing parts of the world. This is the e-waste recycling region, Guangdong province in South China, where I'm working. And these are some of the highest levels of any people in the world of the uh, brominated flame retardants. These are children and women uh, living and working at a site in Nicaragua. That's a waste dump. There are uh, children in the e-waste sites in China and also women and children. So there's a disproportionate impact of chemicals on women and children in, in the poor and in developing world. So there's a high exposure in these children to the DECA, which is a developmental neurotoxin. And I wanted to say, compared with the recycling efforts that um, were discussed earlier in the earlier panel, these waste dumps and the recycling centers in China are, people are working with these compounds with no, no uh, protective uh, clothing whatsoever. They're burning the plastics. They're bur these, uh, the waste dump in Nicaragua is smoldering. So this is very dangerous because when these chemicals start burning, they create dioxins. And this is our group that I'm working with now. One of the people in the group is Linda Birnbaum, who's the new director of NIEHS. And we are working on a study in uh, South China where we have a highly exposed population. So the e-waste is coming from us. It's coming from the developed world to the poor countries. And these are pretty much village industries with people, the whole family, just sitting in the backyard burning plastics to get the um, metal out and taking foam furniture apart. So, this is something that is a global problem and needs global solution in terms of policy. You can see the spike in the breast milk from Asia. So getting to the combination chemicals and climate change, what happens with climate change? 
In areas where there's increased precipitation in severe storm events, you have uh, water washing the chemicals, de depositing the chemicals down into the environment. With areas which are arid, you have chemicals rising into the air so there's more air pollution. With glaciers melting, you're releasing a lot of the stored chemicals in uh, the ice. And we're, what, what we're doing, what we're watching is the food webs becoming more toxic. And also disease, disease factors are increasing, like malaria it is uh, on, the, on the rise. So it's a worst case scenario, particularly for people that are poor, women and children. And these are the chemically stressed populations anyway. So they're vulnerable to disease. I just have one more slide. And um, climate change is pushing this. It's increasing the distribution and toxicity of pollutants. It's increasing the, the disease exposure. And what, what this predicts that the, is that there will be catastrophic illness among the most chemically contaminated people in wildlife. And the wildlife are the guys that I work with. The polar bear is pretty much the poster child for all this. You all know this, but they are highly exposed from the chemicals that are volatilizing and getting up into the ar Arctic. They have um, toxic chemicals in their body that, that um, suppress the immune system and, and create uh, low resistance to disease. Their food webs becoming more toxic. And then climate change comes along, and that added stress is just driving the polar bear to extinction. We're already seeing dramatic species loss. And thank you. These are my animals that I work on the pinnipeds. So if we get a chance to talk about them, I would be thrilled. All right, we're going to change uh, PowerPoint uh, in a minute, although it's, it, I'm sorry, sorry to see these uh, beautiful creatures go away. Um, but first, I want to introduce our next speaker, um, who is Marcela Vasquez-Leon, and she was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia, the real Colombia. And she has an interdisciplinary background. She has a PhD in anthropology and an MS in agricultural economics, which is something we've heard a lot about this morning, uh, from the University of Arizona. And she's currently, she has a joint appointment between the Bureau of Applied Research in Anthropology and the Latin American Area Center at the University of Arizona. Her research interests include environmental anthropology, political ecology, fisheries management and maritime anthropology, as well as rural development and agricultural cooperatives, environmental justice, human dimensions of global and environmental change. And you're beginning to see how these different layers come together, which is one of the things we'll talk about on this panel. Her research focuses on the political ecology of natural resources, particularly on the relationship between folk knowledge and scientific knowledge and environmental change. Well, I'll talk a little bit about why I started working on issues of climate change. I, I worked with rural communities all over Latin America for a while. And uh, I've been living in, the, in Arizona um, for several years. So I became increasingly interested in how uh, rural communities adapt to the semi-arid environment of the Sonoran Desert. Uh, we've had about 10 years of drought that is below average precipitation. Uh, and a series of factors have uh, increased the vulnerability of uh, small communities, small farmers, uh, farm workers, um, 
I've worked on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border in the state of Sonora and in um, Arizona. So we have a common natural environment, but very different policies, very different type of producers. So I always think that that's a very good place to do comparative analysis. But I'm going to talk about um, just one, one case study. Uh, but maybe in the discussion we can go further. Um, I'm going to talk about um, um, how climate change, how uh, declining water resources um, is impacting the most vulnerable uh, populations in the, in the rural sector, in the agricultural sector in southern Arizona. Uh, oh, here it is. Okay. So, Let's see. And then, you know, how ethnicity um, intersects with climate uh, variability to create more vulnerable populations. So this is the region that I've been working in um, as part of the climate assessment project that the university has. Um, and we look at different things. I'm looking at um, social vulnerability. Um, this is an area that has very little surface water, so most of agriculture depends on groundwater. And one of the problems, well, here you have a couple of graphs that show declining precipitation in the past 10 years. I don't know if you can see it from there, but if you look at, can I point? No. <laughs> Well, if you look at the last part of this graph here, um, precipitation has been below average for the past 10 years. Average precipitation in Arizona, it's about um, 12 inches per year. At the same time, we've seen uh, increasing um, temperatures, uh, and temperatures can get pretty hot. Uh, probably through three, four months of the year, we can be at 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So this creates a great deal of um, uh, evaporation which impacts water resources. Um, this is the area that I've been working in. It has, um, well, on the, I don't know if you can see this, this um, uh, map here. It shows um, uh, groundwater wells for agriculture. There have been an increasing number of wells, you know, in the past 10 years as the drought gets, um, uh, you know, further along through time, uh, people are extracting water from greater and greater depths, um, which is, of course, increasing problems. Uh, we have in that region a population of about 34,000 people, and 55 of these people are Hispanics. However, most of the farmers are Anglo, Anglo farmers or, you know, white farmers, however you want to call them. They have um, certainly a lot more land. Uh, and we have about 40 Hispanic farmers. Uh, there's also a, a large population of farm workers, about 2,000 legal workers, plus an unknown number of illegal workers. And what I'm arguing is that both Hispanic farmers and farm workers are experiencing in a very disproportionate way the impact of um, climate change. And this has a lot to do with policy and the way um, Arizona and I think the Southwest, the southern part of the U.S. probably, thinks about how, you know, what is, what is um, good agriculture, what, what is efficient agriculture, and it is the type of agriculture that the U.S. has pushed all over the world, um, including Latin America where I work a lot. In this graph, what I'm trying to show is the amount of groundwater that is used on agriculture. 
uh, agriculture is by far the largest user of groundwater and surface water in Arizona. Um, so it, is, it has a huge impact, even though we, the number of farmers might be small. Um, they have a tremendous impact. Um, now, uh, one of the things that we have been trying to do is try to figure out the long-term, the, the impact of long-term drought, where you have multiple stakeholders that are making claims over a resource that is declining. Um, and where policy and politics are really driving water allocation and not necessarily the amount of water that is available. So basically, environmental change has been put on the side, and policy is really not addressing anything to do with environmental change. Um, so then the question is, how do such factors as ethnicity, social class, gender, literacy, etc., combine to compound risk and create uh, very vulnerable populations. And the way I look at um, social vulnerability, which comes from the climate vulnerability literature, it has three main components, um, two components of risk, which have to do with the extent of exposure of a social system to, cli to specific climatic event, in this case drought, the degree of sensitivity of this social system to the harmful um, socioeconomic impacts, which of course has to do with environmental impacts because they um, actually do, um, um, you know, they, there's feedback both ways. And the second part is, you know, adaptation. What is the level of resilience to deal with and recover with, um, with specific uh, climatic events or climate change? And when you look at adaptation, what I've tried to do is to look at it from a, as a very dynamic process that also has to be comparative. You're, you're going to talk about vulnerable populations. It's useful sometimes to look at and say, well, vulnerable uh, compared to whom or to what. So I look at two, in this case of Arizona, I look at two very clear uh, ways of looking at adaptation. One has to do with uh, buffering. Uh, in which you know there is an interaction between um, technological innovations, uh, private and public investment, um, as well as uh, individual decision making that, that leads particular groups uh, to perceive that they are less vulnerable or even that they are not vulnerable to climate change. And this is very typical of very large-scale agriculture in Arizona. When you talk to farmers, and I have a slide about that somewhere else, that the large you know, cotton and corn farmers that use a great deal of water, they will, they will say, well, it, we, rather, we hope that it doesn't rain because then we can control the amount of water. Um, so they don't see themselves as vulnerable. Therefore, they don't take, make decisions to reduce vulnerability and have a great impact on the natural environment. And then you have coping, which is sort of short-term, immediate strategies to deal with a specific event this year. Um, so these are the most vulnerable populations that are just getting by. And as the drought gets worse, um, their viability decreases. Um, coping means that there is very little um, uh, technological or um, institutional support for different kinds of adaptations. And then, you know, looking at these types of adaptations, it is really critical to ask questions about the adaptive capacity of the system, that is the system in the long term. 
what are the characteristics of the system that give it flexibility to be able to withstand risk or to, or, or to manage risk um, so that you don't have either vulnerability doesn't increase or you are better able to um, deal with future risks. So if we ask the question of adaptive capacity, I think it becomes very clear that a lot of the things that we're doing are not, are, are totally against it. And I think what uh, Susan is talking about just describes it very well. So I also look at um, social capital to look at how different groups in society um, adapt, how, um, what resources do they use, uh, in order to deal with climate uh, variability and climate change. And um, that in turn impacts the way they are going to react. So these, um, so this uh, concept of social um, capital is embedded in, in both informal um, uh, uh, social networks of mutual aid, uh, but, well, I, I don't want to go too much into that because I don't have time, so I won't. So, okay, these are some of the, of the questions, the big questions. How does conflict unfold when you have drought? What are the institutions, how do institutions at the, at the state and federal level uh, mediate to create both winners and losers to make the situation sometimes better, but most of the times worse? And what are the implications of future resilience to drought? Um, so these are some uh, photos of the you know, um, cotton farmers and some of the dams. Um, that's the Coolidge Dam, which was created in the 1920s. And when it was created, it when it was built, it was already uh, built under the assumption that there was going to be more water. So the amount of water that has been distributed to different um, stakeholders has actually never been there from the beginning. So now that we have drought, is even worse. Um, so when you look at these larger farmers uh, and you look at their social capital, these are, they have more open networks in the sense that uh, social capital enables them to bring support from outside the network, from legal institutions, uh, from the U.S. government, from, and I'm talking about subsidies, I'm talking about crop insurance, uh, and I'm also talking about the legal settlement of water rights that has tended to favor uh, these large farmers. Um, well, here is, uh, you know, some of the, uh, Actually, there have been some very positive adaptations from the large farmers, like the adoption of drip irrigation at, at a point. But at the same time, on this uh, graph here, what you see um, is the, um, the uh, uh, water levels on, on, uh, on um, wells uh, that has been, you know, the, the water levels have been declining, and uh, the amount of water, you know, you can be getting water um, uh, 500 feet or 300 feet or it's the same thing for the farmer because the cost of water is very, very low. Here are some examples of subsidies and the type of farming for these large farmers. Uh, I guess you all know that cotton gets a lot of subsidies. The same thing with corn and they use a great deal of water. So that's just a quote from one of the extension agents uh, where he's talking about the, you know, the price of cotton, which is very low, and without the help of Ankle Sum and government subsidies, it wouldn't be worth the cost. 
So without government programs, these farmers wouldn't be planting cotton. They would have switched to something else. Uh, oops. And I just w quickly want to talk a little bit about the Hispanic farmers. These are very low technology producers. They are highly diversified, um, dif very different from the big farmers. Um, and they, their impact on climate change has been very, very uh, much more um, uh, difficult for them, uh, even though their type of agriculture might make more sense in the longer term. They um, have, their social capital is obtained from denser social networks where they do not really have access to institutional assistance, but they do rely on networks that are transmitted from one generation to another. And uh, I'm not, we can talk about those later. Yeah. Uh, so very quickly, just so that you look at the different amounts of subsidies that Hispanic farmers are receiving versus white farmers, it's a huge difference. Um, there's a very interesting, the environmental working group has incredible amount of data on these. And I was really, I wasn't expecting it was going to be so different. But it is, which means that, you know, uh, small scale farmers, these Hispanic farmers, even though they are producing crops that are highly adapted to uh, the desert environment, although they need irrigation, they can't, they don't have uh, support to, become, to use drip irrigation, for example. So they're still using this type of irrigation that wastes a lot of water in evaporation. So they have not been able to follow adaptations that would make sense because they don't have the money, they don't have loans. It's very hard for them uh, to be um, considered for programs. The same thing, disaster programs. Um, and then very quickly, uh, farm workers, there are different kinds. And I think the ones that are uh, having the worst um, problems are those farm workers who are seasonal, who are um, not um, documented, and uh, worst of all, who are indigenous or women. Uh, those suffer the consequences of climate change a great uh, deal more. And, and when you talk about farm workers, one of the key issues is that Sonora, the state you know, south of Arizona in Mexico, is also having a really a bit bad problem with drought. So what is happening is a lot of those small farmers and their families are migrating north uh, to deal with more drought in the north. So it's a double uh, problem. You can read the conclusions while I introduce our, our next speaker. Um, and we'll get a chance to hear more from Marcella um, later. Um, Eleanor Sterling got up the earliest in the morning to get here. Um, she had to take a bus down from upstate. It was still snowing up there when she got up. Um, and uh, she is the director of the American Museum of Natural History's Center for Biodiversity and Conservation. She oversees strategic planning and project development, leads fundraising efforts, and manages a multidisciplinary staff of over 25. In her capacity as a conservation biologist, Eleanor studies biodiversity and the history of land use in Vietnam, leading the publication in 2006 of Vietnam, A Natural History, which was co-authored with two colleagues at the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation. Um, and um, she is also the chair of the Palmyra 
Palmyra Atoll Research Consortium and is working to document biodiversity on this remote atoll in the Pacific Ocean. So you can see we're, in this panel we're trying to bring together issues of the natural environment, human <laughs> communities, and social action. So Eleanor Sterling. Thankfully I don't have any PowerPoint. To, um, great. Well, thank, thank the organizers for um, having me and thank you in the audience for sticking it through to the end. Everything got turned off. So can you, can you hear me now? Anything I can do to make that work? All right. I can scream, but you really don't want me to. So as you heard, um, I'm the director of the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation at the American Museum of Natural History. And one of the um, major issues I wanted to bring up in this session is to think about, in terms of development and sustainability, the issue of integrating biological, cultural, and linguistic diversity. And, and I find in my um, work that um, I was trained both as an anthropologist and as environmental studies, um, but even from my earliest training years on through the professional career that I've had, um, there are people who are really devoted to being concerned about biological diversity and they write books on climate change and biological diversity and they study it and they think about solutions for it. And then there are people who are interested in people and adaptation and adaptation strategies with indigenous communities. And they write books on adaptations in indigenous communities and climate change. But they're not necessarily talking with each other in a very substantive way, nor are they looking at the whole system, looking at understanding what happens when a community adapts to climate change and uses their environment in a different way relies on a different part of biological diversity. That then changes the environment, changes the biological diversity that's there, which then affects the people. And so you have to understand that in a really complex problem like climate change, you need to worry about complex solutions. And to do that, you have to look across whole systems and not necessarily look in a siloed way at individual parts. And in a linear way, think that you can come up with any kind of meaningful solutions by only knowing a piece of the whole. So that's um, one of the themes that I wanted to talk about today. As Joni said this morning, you know, two degrees is not good for flora and fauna, and two degrees is not good for people, but two degrees is also not good for flora and fauna interacting with people. So those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. Um, one example of our, our siloed look at things is our inability, um, as we heard earlier this morning, to, from earlier to this afternoon from Rachel, to think about women and gender issues in um, making decisions about climate change. So people often look at a, at a community, even those who are really interested in the effect of climate change on communities, are thinking of the community as a whole, as if that whole community somehow reacts in a, in a singular way to climate change and um, in, a, in a particular area. And yet we know from lots and lots of different studies and more in-depth looks at this that, um, that these communities are not the same and that uh, males and females have different roles that they play in providing food, in providing clean water, and in providing energy and fuel to families. And therefore, women may be disproportionately affected by climate change. Just as some very quick examples, we've heard them a little bit before, but maybe here's a little more detail. Women um, are the primary food gatherers and food getters in many, many households around the world from New York City to Africa. And as crops fail due to the unpredictability of rainfall, of floods, of droughts, 
and in the types of crops that might survive in a per particular area as the climate keeps changing, the information that women have and the women's ability to get that food is going to be um, critically affected. Um, as traditional food sources may become more unpredictable and scarce as the climate changes, that knowledge that women have about those food resources and of alternative food resources is going to become in increasingly critical, but it also puts extra stress on women in other countries who are dealing with these um, traditional food sources. We also find um, here in the United States that women who are buying foods in the, in the market are making choices about supporting industrial agriculture, supporting organic, supporting not organics. How is that all affected by climate change and the availability of foods even in our marketplaces in the United States? And how does our purchasing power as an individual um, affect the global climate um, thinking about food miles or not, or locavores or not. And um, it's a lot of stress on women to be on top of what to be doing when they're in the marketplace, to be thinking about their role as climate citizens. Um, we also hear about the increased burden of carrying water long, longer distances from sources to families for people, particularly someone who may live, for instance, people who live in Africa in the dry season may have to walk more than six miles a day to get water, to carry it on their heads. It's heavy, heavy, heavy. We had an, um, an exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History where we had just a quarter of what women carry on their head a day to supply food, water for their families. And a lot of people couldn't lift that bucket, even just to lift it up, much less put it on their head and then walk six miles. If we had to do that for just one person in our family, uh, we'd have to be carrying 500 to 740 pounds a day to get the water that we use in the United States and North America in our daily lives. Um, so that current burden that women face in, in other countries where they have to go get water from a water source is only going to increase with the unpredictability of rainfall, with droughts, with floods, and climate change could exacerbate all of this. Um, so the women may be more sensitive to these changes. We can repeat this over and over again. Women who go to get fuel wood for fire. All of these um, investments that women have that are increased by uh, climate change are going to then affect whether women are able to um, participate as um, it, it go to school or, or um, increase their education. Often these are inverse relations between the amount of time they're investing in getting food and water and fuel for their family and their ability to um, increase their education. Um, and we heard from Susan that women will f increasingly face burdens because they are the primary caregivers, particularly in an illness situation in their families. We anticipate climate change may affect human health in a variety of ways. Um, we heard from Joni that it will increase the spread of vector and waterborne diseases and that combination between malaria, anemia, and um, pregnant women is just one example. We'll have increased cases of heat, stre heat stress and respiratory illnesses, um, water and food-based diseases, hearkening back to what I just talked about, are also going to potentially increase, and um, things like malnutrition in developing countries and obesity in the United States are all going to be things that women as primary caregivers are going to be facing uh, more stress in their daily lives. Susan gave an eye-opening and hopefully action-promoting talk earlier on these health issues and their relation to women. Um, women also around the world often have less access to medical care than men. Uh, a lot of the studies that are done on what you can do, even in a developing country or what are the major illnesses, are focused in on men way, way more often than women. So 
lots of vulnerability um, for women in the climate change arena. Um, women also have unequal access to resources, limited mobility, um, and in many cases are disproportionately affected by natural disasters. Um, so these gender inequalities and this lack of access to resources, lack of credit, lack of extension service, lack of information and technology are some of the problems that women face. I don't want to spend my time up here focusing in on the problems that they face. I want those to be in the back of our minds as we're thinking about solutions. Um, we uh, find that policymakers, I went to Copenhagen, um, for better or worse, um, and, I, and I up front saw what, uh, what the policymakers were thinking needed to be happening um, in addressing climate change. And the four things they keep talking about are mitigation, adaptation, technology, and financing. And in every single one of those, women are underrepresented. Women were underrepresented at, at the Copenhagen as well. Um, apparently, we were twice the delegates, um, twice the delegates there than in any of the other COP, the Conference of the Parties um, interactions. And I think there was maybe 25% representation of women at that meeting. Um, so um, we we need to do a better job of understanding the effects on women um, of things like climate change by recognizing diversity within a community and by disaggregating statistics so you're not looking at a community as a whole but you're looking at a community made up of different groups including men and women um, we need to mainstream gender perspectives as rachel's been trying to do with we do and the work that they're doing in the climate change efforts on the national regional and international level that includes policies strategies action plans and programs we need to emphasize and foster the major contribution that women are already making as agents of change in mitigation and adaptation at the local levels again women have specific knowledge of biological diversity and they're working to find ways to um, overcome problems that they're already facing in these arid areas of Africa where the crops that they've always traditionally grown are no longer able to survive. They're looking for, they're looking through their collective knowledge to figure out what else could be grown in these areas to help feed their families. That's just, again, one example of women as change agents and developing the knowledge that they already have. We can continue to reduce the vulnerability of women that I talked about earlier and reduce the negative impacts of climate change um, by understanding their role and understanding the, the uh, problems that they face. And an um, example, again, is that women around the world have been working on developing new systems of access to sufficient quantities of clean water. And one of the systems that they developed in Africa is now being used by the city of Sydney um, to fix their city urban problems using a rural example that a women's community brought, uh, brought together in Africa. So we can all learn from each other, I guess, is a, a good example of what I wanted to say. Um, we need to think about how women can be more involved in technology. We need to think about some of those technological solutions and understand if they really are solutions. But we also need to understand that technology is not gender neutral. And by involving women into these decisions about new technologies, we can help to ensure if they, in fact, might be more user-friendly, effective, and sustainable. Women most definitely should have equal access to training, credit, and skills development programs. And my experience overseas is that when we run a workshop and we're working with local communities, and local communities select who's present at those meetings, it's always men. 
and we have to ask very specifically for representation from younger individuals as well as from women um, in, in these training initiatives. Um, Joni spoke a lot this morning about finances, and I think it's actually pretty key for us to, to keep in the, our minds that the market-based solutions are the major paradigms that people are pushing around the world to these climate problems. And while there may be a role for those, we do need to be thinking about how those market-based solutions have fared for us in a gender-specific way in the past. If you look at international integrated conservation and development projects, which are programs that looked to integrate across biological and cultural and um, livelihood um, issues in the past, they traditionally overlooked the role of women in, in um, communities. And in communities where an integrated conservation development project had been uh, set in place, you often found that men were the individuals who, who benefited from any financial um, remuneration that went to a community. And in the communities where I worked, across the globe, that inevitably meant that men went off and had fun and drank a lot, and the women still had the same problems they always faced, if not worse, because there was an expectation that somehow the community was doing better um, because there was this financial influx. We absolutely have to be clear that things like RED that jo Joni talked about this morning, the um, reducing deforestation and, and degradation, is not at this point thinking about how women use resources in the forest. It's not taking into account differential um, use by different genders of forest, um, access to forests, and how um, this, these red programs might just continue to replicate the problems that we started with integrated conservation and development projects. Um, so we need better gender screens for climate financing, and we also need to think about the issue that environmental and, and conservation psychologists um, worry about in terms of climate change and in terms of financing these issues, that the problem itself is large scale and long term, and yet the cost is often at the level of the individual. So it's probably the worst case scenario for getting somebody to invest in something, whether it's your resources, your time, your energy, or your money. You, you can't see the benefit right away, and we're terrible at reacting to things where we don't get that immediate benefit, especially in the United States. Um, which comes to my last point that I want to make, which is that all of this at the fundamental base, our problem in not addressing climate change is partly that we're not thinking systemically, and it's partly that we're not really understanding what we value. We tend to spend a lot of time um, listening to somebody else telling us what's important to us. The market is driving something. And in the US Congress, you can see that they're all worried about their constituencies. And in their constituencies at the base, they think their constitu constituencies may mainly care about money. So if you want to get the Convention on Biological Diversity signed, if there's a farmer in um, Montana who's worried that somehow a small animal on its land, on the farmer's land would take that farmer um, away that farmer's ability to herd sheep on the land, then it's not something that anybody wants to support. It has nothing to do with what they value, who they, it's all about money and, uh, and not about sort of a community-wide or a global perspective on what's important to us. Um, in fact, when I was in Copenhagen, I was representing the small, small island nation of the Solomon Islands. And um, all sorts of horrible things happened to them during the time that we were there. But one of the worst was when the United States finally showed up at the negotiations and sort of ripped the, um, 
the rug out from underneath a lot of work, a lot of hard work by small groups. And I, was, I remember sitting in the cafeteria with these guys and they said, you know, if we were a bank, a small island nation community were a bank, we would have been rescued by now. And um, so we need to recognize that we can't have the markets determine for us the things that are important to us at this global scale. They can determine for us what flavor of ice cream is available to us, but they can't determine to us for us the future of the world, the future of biological diversity and the local communities that live on it. Um, okay, I'll skip to the end. Um, we need to um, look, have a systemic look, not just at how climate change affects biological diversity, how it affects people, but all the feedbacks and dyna dynamism in that whole um, element and how we can all be working together across our interest groups to try to find solutions. We need to understand the full range of causes, effects, solutions. We need to be creative, and we have, need to have a sound ethical basis that values much more than just money. Thank you very much. I want to go ahead and open it up to the audience um, and ask you all for questions. And we will um, take a bunch of questions, and, then, and we'll also, at the end, have time for them to get their last points in by running down the end of the panel. So don't worry, you won't lose out on everything that we talked about. Corn and cotton in Arizona is totally unsustainable. I mean, planting anything that is water intensive in a desert is just total nonsense. Um, and so that leads me to the question, if you would get the stimulus uh, money, what would you do? Uh, that's an excellent question. I'm going to hold that question, because I'm, I'm going to put that to everybody. If you got stimulus money, what would you do with it? We're going to do that. That'll be our wrap-up, I think. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I recognize that there was not enough vegetarian food for everyone, um, but I just frankly was a little surprised. I just recently went vegetarian, and I'm not on any kind of um, you know, soapbox about it, but we use so much resources in this country, and I know other countries are wanting to increase their consumption of meat, and we really have to recognize there, there's been a lot of talk about farming and food, but um, to, to really look at the resources that are used for the food that we eat and to recognize that there's plenty of protein from plant-based foods, and then it goes into um, what we're consuming in terms of um, concentrating toxins in breast milk and hormones and, you know, pesticides on and on. So I just wanted to basically comment, and if you have any comments about that, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, so we have a good connection here between the natural world and the human world, which is what we eat. Susan, you want to respond to that? Yeah, I would just say that this is very true, and it's a, it's a, good, a good point that what we eat does affect what goes into our bodies and builds up. And there is a relationship between the, the food web that we are, have been talking about from various perspectives is becoming more poisoned. And that's because of the way we live and the way we believe we should live. And I think Winona said this morning, we believe that governments and corporations should take care of us, and they don't. And it's very clear that the policies in this country regarding toxic chemicals that go into food and the way foods are grown are not right. They do not, they are based on values that are totally unsustainable and destructive for the world. And that now there are uh, um, initiatives to change those policies at the federal level to reform TSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. And there's, there are initiatives that in many, many states, similar to the one that um, I was involved with in Maine to 
ban some of these chemicals that we have in our everyday lives. So I think that, um, just back to climate change, um, what, what we have here, we're just living in a precarious way compared to the way that we, the, the, compared to the natural world and the laws of the fundamental laws of the natural world that are going to actually s sustain us biologically, physiologically. Um, this is not going to last forever, and you know, by the way, we as a species do not have unlimited adaptation capacity. We are not very different from the polar bears. It's just a matter of time. And that brings up an issue that we were talking about earlier, which is the question of moving beyond the adaptation model that Joni was also being critical of. And do any of the rest of you want to respond on that particular point? Well, I, I just want to say one thing that um, you know, has to do with the people that I'm looking at and the type of food they are being, um, the, the push towards producing foods that are completely unsustainable. And when you look at the Mexican farmers, the small Mexican farmers have been very negatively impacted by NAFTA and by climate change, by both. Um, the foods that are being pushed uh, or, or the push is to do away with those <laughs> traditional foods that have been there forever. Uh, the types of corn that the small farmers, Hispanic farmers are producing, if the drought continues, if there is no, no um, assistance for them at all to be able to be more efficient with their use of water, that type of corn is probably going to disappear. And there is a whole, this, this is called elote, it's a very specific, the same thing with the chili peppers that they are producing, the type of beans. Um, it's all directed to the Mexican market. And, uh, but as they dwindle, as they become unable to be producers, and in Mexico, I would say probably, I don't know, 50, more than 50% of the small farmers have already moved out of agriculture because of a combination of drought and NAFTA. And the, the big producers, both in Mexico and in the US, or the, the main producers now are the big, you know, the big producers for corporations as well. Uh, so, yes, it's unsustainable, but I don't see a change. And we talk about it all the time, and uh, nothing happens. So I'm not very optimistic, <laughs> at least on that side of the world. I also see the U.S. pushing for free trade agreements with a lot of the Central American countries, with South America, and that is going to create the same sorts of dynamics, inability to compete with the U.S. who has subsidies. Therefore, the level of local agriculture begins to go down. So I've seen it in other parts as well. So. My question stemmed actually out of what uh, Professor Dr. Sterling was saying, but it's really a question for all of the panelists. And what do you think should be the ethical framework governing work on climate change? And do you have a set of core principles or ideas that you think form the base of this? And what are they? Thank you. Uh, my question is also for Professor um, Sterling. I was wondering, um, I know in the climate negotiation, you push for finance for climate change to be new and additional. But I think when you talk about climate change and development, it's very important that financing is uh, put together because if development isn't climate proofed, it's not going to work, basically. So I was really wondering if I could hear your opinion on that matter. Um, there was somebody who said that um, technology is not gender neutral. And I would uh, propose that it's also not class neutral, and it's not ecologically neutral either. 
um, the the term market. I mean, mar markets have existed, you know, for human history over human history. But capitalism is, I think, something that we need to key in on. And how do you, how would you guys expect something that's the, you know, and also talk about there's fundamental laws of the natural world. There's also fundamental laws of capitalism. And how is something that's posited on unending accumulation going to square with what we need to do, what we're running out of time? All right, good. So um, we're going to start with Eleanor because several of these are for her. And then we'll come down uh, to think about not only uh, what happens if we could change funding structure. All right. Yeah, I think I'll actually start with that last question because I think um, I think we give capitalism too much credit. I think we need to be more clear about the fact that there are other systems out there. And in fact, you youngsters use some of those systems way more than um, folks in my generation have. There's a lot of barter happening now, the sort of Craigslist. Um, the internet has really opened up opportunities for exchange that are not based on capital, that are not based on money. There's a lot of um, systems that are built on social capital, and we heard several examples of them. And we just need to, I think, spend a little more time forwarding the, the systems of, of um, exchange that we feel are sustainable and that are helpful for us in the long run, and spend a little less time uh, promoting capitalism, but also shooting it down by, by, by spending so much time talking about it as if it's the only thing out there. And it, as if it has hegemony, we're actually giving it more credit than it's due. Um, so that's, um, I think that's a really important question you had. And I completely agree with you that technology is not just gender, uh, not gender neutral, but also there are a lot of other issues. And several people talked about the, the issues of underrepresentation, and those are key as well. So those are really good points you made. All right. Marcella. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I, I do work. I've, one of the key interests of mine in working in Latin America has been working with grassroots collective strategies for livelihoods and to deal with environmental change, to deal with economic pressures. And for the past five years, I've been um, involved in a project that looks at cooperatives, associations at the grassroots level. And from there, I see wonderful examples of how in many places people are saying, okay, that's it. Stop the pressure on, treat, on trying to treat us as individual uh, people that are independent from everybody else that we live with. We are collective societies. And as collective societies, I think, um, I think this whole notion of acting collectively and collective action seems to be so foreign in the US, or at least at a certain level. But when you look at communities in the US, in Latin America, and everywhere, I think that sense of collectivity is very important. And I do see um, communities standing up to do something about it. As you, you know, there are many, many uh, different forms of collective action that are uh, being that are successful. And then we, I think, in general, or the media or politicians, choose not to give them enough credit. But they are there, and they are allowing people to make their livelihoods uh, despite incredible pressures. Um, so I think we do have to pay more attention to that. And it would be great if the media would pay more attention to those type of, of um, collective organization instead of just assuming that 
yeah, capitalism is the only way and individual um, need is the only thing that needs to be addressed. I, w I would agree with my panelists, but also to say um, the work we've been doing in China, it, it's an example of this as well. We, um, one of the things I do is biomonitoring studies, as you know, and we are trying to do some biomonitoring of highly exposed people in China that are handling e-waste from the developed countries in ways that they should not be doing. And what we are also doing is trying to get the Chinese government to use, put less of this, these compounds into products that are then shipped over here. And China, as you know, is the largest manufacturer of products that we import. So um, it's a, and I'm using this as it's a pollution scenario, but it's, um, it also, it, it exemplifies what we've been talking about where you have market-driven industry. Roman industry is fighting aggressively in China because they are, they, um, are trying to sa save their, um, the money. And they, they pour millions of dollars into campaigns to show the Chinese that you need more and more and more of these toxic chemicals going into products that are coming into the US. So one of the things we are trying to do to fight that is to show that these compounds are building up in people to dangerous levels. And if you can take a highly exposed population like you have the people handling e-waste and show effects in that population, you have a huge leverage at a policy level. And you can take that right into policymakers and get, um, get laws changed. And so we're trying to, as scientists, we're, collaboration is key. As, um, I think Peggy, Peggy Shepard said this morning, it's key and it's also important that feminist values come into play in these arenas, like the arena I'm in, um, the arena that Marcella's in, Eleanor's talked, spoken to it, and certainly Rachel. Um, I think there are things that we can all do to, to become involved and um, it's important that we become involved. It's, we're, we have a world at stake here. I actually wanted to address the question about development and finance. Um, I think, um, well, when thinking about it globally, uh, there is a separation that people want to make between financing uh, for climate change and financing for development simply because who's paying? Um, and in general, uh, when you're talking about Financing for climate change, you're talking about adaptation financing, financing for mitigation, and usually it's money from the north going to the south. Um, and a lot of times, uh, southern countries are saying the north needs to pay for adaptation on top of the loans that they're giving us for development. So they want to separate, make that distinction and have that separation um, for those different financing mechanisms. And that's also been a huge, huge rift within international negotiations and why there probably hasn't been an agreement as of today um, between North and South. Uh, financing is probably one of the most important issues next to um, mitigation uh, and 
basically the industrialized countries taking responsibility um, for all of the emissions that they pour out um, and uh, southern countries having to deal with the impacts.